Welcome, listeners. You're listening to the DOGS program. Uh, the DOGS stands for the Defence of Government Schools. So we're here to defend and to promote public education. Now, that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access and ownership and control. And for that reason, it should be publicly funded because it is the only one that is publicly accountable. The other thing that we are for is separation of religion and state, and the thing we are against is state aid to private schools. Now, we have a website at www.adogs.info, and our press release 996 deals with Sydney and Perth private schools that don't just charge fees, they, they charge an upfront fee just to enrol their students. Why? Because these schools are, in fact, businesses. And if you think about that, if they're not charities and they're businesses, that has implications. And Andy is going to tell us about this. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. And this is press release number 996. Private schools act like businesses, not charities, and should pay their share of tax. Top private schools in Australia are charging parents up to $8,000 just to enrol students. That is even before they ask for anything up to $40,000 a year in fees. On September the 18th, 2023, Nathan Schmidt of the Sydney Morning Herald and Holly Thompson of the West Australian revealed that parents are forking out extra payments of up to $8,000 just to secure their children a spot in some of the country's most elite private schools. Now, the full stories and figures can be found at links that we'll be putting up on the website. There's nothing new about this information, shocking as it might seem in a so-called egalitarian society, but perhaps the most appropriate reactions came from the comments of readers in the Sydney Morning Herald. One private school parent wrote, uh, and this person uh, calling themselves Rhino, the private schools all over the country need an overhaul. They charge unjust fees and are unwilling to break down a cost schedule. Just pay your fees. During COVID, we schooled our kids at home and still paid full tuition fees while the school pocketed $7 million COVID relief from the government and did not pass it on to the clients. Where is the government watchdog for these rip-off merchants? Private schools are a business now, not a school. And a public school parent, Isaac, wrote, If these schools are charging that much in an enrolment fee, then they clearly don't need as much support from the government as they are getting. There are very few private enterprises, yes, private schools are private enterprises run for profit, that receive the level of public funding that they do. The dogs agree with both comments. They would, however, like to add that since private schools are businesses, not charities, they should not be exempt from taxes, but should pay their local rates, their payroll tax, their income tax, most particularly on their extensive endowments and their GST. And of course, they should not be publicly funded. Back to you, Jean. Thank you. Well, let's find out a little bit more about these private schools charging all this money. Let's have a look at the um, Sydney instance. And uh, Dale's going to tell us about that. And Andy's going to tell us about the Perth example. Over to you, Dale. 
Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got an article by Nathan Schmidt about the Sydney private schools charging $7,000 just to enrol students. So the shocking fee parents are forking out to secure their children a spot in some of the country's most elite schools has finally been revealed. Parents of students at at some of Sydney's most exclusive schools, reportedly are being charged thousands of dollars just to secure their enrolment. Trinity Grammar, Cranbrook and the King's School are among the city's elite institutions which charge prospective students a non-refundable enrolment fee. An independent all-boys school, Trinity Grammar, hiked its enrolment fee uh, by almost 80% to $5,000 in the past year, according to the Sydney Morning Herald. Shaw School in the city's north, likewise, increased its combined confirmation and enrolment fee by about 30% to $4,000 since 2021, despite rising cost of living. Cranbrook School in Bellevue Hill is one of Sydney's elite schools charging a pre-enrolment fee. The fee is one of many faced by parents and ranges from $2,000 to $7,275, which is used to confirm a student will accept a place on top of application fees of up to $400. In some cases, parents are reportedly paying enrolment fees two to three years before their children commence their studies in order just to secure a place at an elite school. The fee hike comes after similar increases projected for tuition in the 2023 school year and is described by critics as a way of stopping parents shopping around. Education governance expert and former member of council at Scotch College, John Simpson, told the Sydney Morning Herald the fees are used to give schools greater certainty about revenue. They force anxious parents to make early and binding decisions about where to enrol their child, he told the Sydney paper on Wednesday. But very high upfront fees really can't be justified if they don't go towards school tuition costs once a child starts at the school. As school fees and cost of living pressures rise, enrolment charges will go up. Schools need to be wary of fee gouging before a child has even started at the school. A modest enrolment fee is justified, but what we're seeing in the sector can cannot any longer be described as modest. Many schools reportedly do not allow enrolment fees to be counted towards tuition and it is forfeited if parents decide to send their children elsewhere. The fees are often demanded before thousands of public selective school places are announced about six months before the start of the school year. Ah, you know why that's the case? Because a lot of these parents in the end would prefer to send their children to a public school which is selective rather than a private school which is not selective academically so much as uh, on, on who can pay. The selective schools of New South Wales are and always have been far, far superior to the uh, private schools. Well, nonetheless, the payment structure was defended by institutions such as Cranbrook School, which charges parents 
a $7,275 fee just to secure a place. In recent letters to prospective parents, Cranbrook Principal Nicholas Sampson reportedly said the non-refundable enrolment fee was required for all incoming students. Mr Simpson said the fee was used to help build an endowment fund to ensure the financial security of the school, which received about $1.7 million in enrolment fees last year. Trinity Grammar Principal Tim Bowden told the Sydney Morning Herald it's been a decade since the school council last reviewed the charges, which were generally payable in the two years before a start date. One of the functions of the fee is to require families to demonstrate their intention to come to Trinity, he said. Otherwise, they could accept places at half a dozen schools and walk away at the last minute. So there was many, many comments here. Troy said it's interesting some call it an endowment fund when the actual education fees far exceed the fee. Put simply, it's a simple cash take. There was one comment by someone calling themselves Nanu who says, if parents choose to pay these fees, what business is it of anyone else? Well, I'll tell you, Nanu, it's our business because these schools are getting millions in our taxpayer dollars. That's what business is of ours. And they don't pay any taxes. There's many millions, there's many taxation expenditures also because they don't pay any taxes. So-called so charities. Millions, millions and Jeff says another good reason to stick to the state public school system and Claire says that's why they are called elite schools to pay that is nothing or a small price to pay for some people just another example of division amongst herd animals now I'm going to pass you back to Andy who's got some information on the Perth private schools thanks Dale top Perth private schools charging parents $8,000 just to secure a spot. Uh, this is by Holly Thompson uh, from September the 18th, 2023. Parents are being charged up to $8,365 in non-refundable enrolment fees to lock in their child's place at Perth's top private schools, where yearly fees already cost up to $30,000 by the time students reach year 12. This year, Scotch College is requiring first-time parents to pay more than $8,000 after their child is accepted into the school. The fee does not go towards tuition and is often paid years in advance. Without payment, a student's placement will not be confirmed. The amount includes a $7,650 endowment fee, and, and that's a word that was used, I think, in a, one of the Sydney schools. They're playing from the same playbook by the sound of it. Uh, which the school says supports the development of new buildings and resources on campus, and a $715 fee for a life membership to the Old Scotch Collegians program. The $715 fee can be refunded if a child does not commence at the school, but the endowment fee cannot. It is a similar case at Hale School, where the enrolment fee is $8,100. Other low-fee private schools also require enrolment payments, but they are often under $1,000. The majority of schools also offer discounted enrolment fees to second and third children in families who attend. Proponents say the fees are designed to stop parents' school shopping by joining multiple waiting lists, but then withdrawing applications once a spot is secured at a preferred option or after being offered a selective school place. Education expert and former member of council at Scotch College in Melbourne, John Simpson, said very high upfront fees really can't be justified if they don't go towards school tuition costs once a child starts at the school. 
Schools need to be wary of fee gouging before a child has started at the school. A modest enrolment fee is justified, but what we are seeing in the sector cannot any longer be described as modest. Curtin University School of Education senior lecturer Brad Gobby said the enrolment fees were just another step towards barring anyone outside society's upper echelons from attending. High fees like those at Perth's elite schools exclude most children from attending because their parents cannot afford those schools, regardless of if a deposit is required. High fee paying schools are for the wealthy and privileged, he said. Parents are making more use of credit or loans to pay enrolment fees. This puts upward pressure on these fees. There is plenty of research to suggest that paying exorbitant fees is not a good investment if your goal is to optimise the academic achievement of your child. It may be a good investment if you want to socialise your child into Perth's elite and privileged community. These schools are typically in high demand, so having a deposit to secure a spot might give peace of mind to parents that their child will attend the school they choose for them. Gobby said enrolment fees were influenced by supply and demand, parents' capacity to pay, and the school's balance sheet. This bleeding of enrolments to competitors is not good for a school. Perhaps requesting a deposit is about shoring up the numbers by locking in the parents so they don't shop around, he said. Being confident about future enrolments can help schools plan longer term. Sounds very business-like. It's a bit of a good business plan, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And look, the, the rest of the article d- goes on to... I guess, give the opportunity for these private schools to justify these enormous fees. But, you know, I think any claim about requiring the the fees in order to plan doesn't really argue against the fact that it's a non-refundable fee and that it doesn't go towards tuition. I mean, it would be quite easy to take take a deposit and use it towards tuition and, and have the same outcome. So I believe they're crying poor unnecessarily. Yes, well, I'd... I think back to the very start of state aid, uh, they all got a bit a bit much and we, we complained, people complained about the wealthy schools. And then in 1973, there was supposed to be a needs policy, the famous needs policy. There's been so many needs policies. And Carmel, who was a fairly good economist, a good educational economist, he said these schools were class A and therefore they shouldn't get any money. So they all complained, they all cried poor, you've no idea. There were poor parish schools, although that's a myth now, there are very few poor parish schools, but these wealthy schools cried poor like you've never heard it cry before, and so they were reclassified. They were no longer Class A, they were classified down. It was from A to H. They didn't quite make the H. That was for the poor parish schools, but they certainly went down to C and D. So, um, yes, they are businesses. They should pay their taxes and they shouldn't have a penny of public money. But uh, let's have a good break. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 
Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive great Positive relationships with each other, with teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I suppose, and I really hope so. And um, we we thank you for letting us into your house and into your radio uh, listening. But uh, we're going overseas now. We've been bogged down with private schools in Australia. Now let's go to a new OECD report which highlights the unmet need for Australia's public schools. Over to Dale. Thanks, Jean. So I've got an AEU press release saying a new OECD report highlights unmet need for Australia's public schools. The latest Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD's Education at a Glance report shows that Australia significantly underperforms against most OECD countries when it comes to investing in public schools. The report also finds that Australian teachers on average have much higher workloads, higher than average class sizes and confirms that the salaries of Australia's teachers plateau much earlier than they do in most OECD countries. Additionally, the report also notes that private schools in Australia receive some of the highest share of government funding in the cohort. So, according to the report... 
Australia spends only 1.5% of total government expenditure on upper secondary school education, which is 28.6% lower than the OECD average of 2.1%. As a share of GDP, Australia spends only 0.8% on upper secondary school education, which is 27% lower than the OECD average of 1.1% of GDP. Australia's expenditure on teaching staff per student is below the OECD average and below the investment made in many comparator countries, including Belgium, Germany, Norway, France, United States, Canada, the UK and Denmark. Australian teachers have the third highest average instruction times, amounting at over 1,000 hours each year, compared to an average of 805 hours in primary schools and 916 hours in secondary schools across the OECD. The average experienced teacher salary in Australia is only 1.3 times higher than the graduate teacher wage, the sixth lowest in the OECD. Whereas in 12 countries, including Israel, Ireland, New Zealand, the Netherlands and Austria, it's more than 150% of the graduate teacher salary. Australia spends more than all countries except Turkey and Colombia on government funding for private schools at 0.7% of the GDP, which is more than twice as much as the OECD average. AEU Federal President Karenna Haythorpe said that the OECD's report was yet another indicator pointing to the urgent need for full and fair funding of public schools across Australia. This report makes it clear that Australia is a global outlier in its failure to fully fund public education, Ms Haythorpe said. The chronic underfunding of Australia's public schools has led to a chronic teacher shortage and a situation where schools struggle to provide our students with the individual support they need. This must change. The Albanese government must address the crisis facing our nation's public education system with the urgency it deserves. Australia's public school teachers are some of the most dedicated and hardworking across the world, yet they continue to be left unsupported. Australian teachers have some of the highest workloads and largest class sizes globally. This is unacceptable. Our public school teachers strive to provide the best possible educational outcomes for students, but governments, both federal and state, are failing in their responsibility to students and to Australia's public education workforce. Currently, only 1.3% of Australian public schools are funded to meet their schooling resource standard, the SRS, entitlements. That means over 98% of our public schools are not not funded to meet the most basic student requirements. Years of inaction and underfunding of Australia's public education system has resulted in a situation where our students risk falling behind compared to their peers globally. At the same time, private schools continue to benefit from ever-increasing government support. Fully funding public schools is the only way to ensure that every child has every opportunity to succeed. 
The Albanese government must ensure that the next round of new school funding agreements with state and territory governments deliver full funding for all public schools across the country, she said. Ms Haythorpe said that as part of the new For Every Child campaign, the AEU has released a national plan setting out the case for full funding and the top priorities for additional investment, including smaller class sizes, a permanent small group or individual tutoring program in every public school and additional support for students with disability or behavioural issues. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, that's the OECD report um, as analysed by the Australian Education Union, but uh, underfunding public education has consequences. And one of those is that teachers are spending their own money uh, to just educate the children in their classes. Over to Maddie. Thank you, Jean. This is teachers spending their own money due to underfunding, and it's from AEU Victoria. Teachers are being forced to spend hundreds of dollars of their own money each year to ensure that students do not miss out on vital education activities due to the underfunding of public schools by governments. National polling of principals, teachers and support staff shows 85% of public school teachers are spending their own money, with the average amount being just over $885 a year. New South Wales, WA and Northern Territory teachers are spending on average over $1,000 each a year. Based on the national average, the total spending by teachers is $159.5 million a year. The main items teachers are buying are stationery, classroom equipment, library resources and textbooks. Teachers report that the top reasons they are spending their own money is that it's the only way to deliver a lesson, 44%, and students would miss out if they didn't, 40%. AEU Federal President Corinna Haythorpe said the spending reflected the fact that only 1.3% of public schools are resourced at the schooling resource standard, the SRS. The minimum amount governments agreed a decade ago is required to meet the needs of every child. Underfunding of public schools is leading to unsustainable workloads for teachers and principals, along with the need to use their own money to pay for the basics so that students don't miss out, Ms. Hayfort said. This spending reflects the dedication and commitment of teachers in public schools who do whatever it takes every day to deliver a high-quality education to children across Australia. Unfortunately, it also reflects the failure of the Commonwealth and state and territory governments to fund public schools to their own funding standard. If politicians had to buy their own office equipment, we would never hear the end of it. So why is it okay for them to indefinitely underfund the schools that educate the future of this nation? The AEU is running the National For Every Child campaign to secure new funding agreements between the Albanese government and state and territory governments that will deliver 100% of the SRS to all public school systems by 2028. The research also shows that 72% of public school principals have undertaken fundraising in the last year. Over 80% of those principals say fundraising is an important part of their budget. The top thing the money is used for is classroom equipment. The fact that teachers and principals are running sausage sizzles to pay for the basics is a sad reflection on the current priorities of governments in this country. Fully funding public schools is an investment in our future. It would allow schools to cut class sizes and provide more individual attention to students while also giving teachers more time to plan high-quality lessons and collaborate with their colleagues, Ms Haythorpe said. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Maddie. And, of course, it's, it's not surprising that there's a dearth of teachers 
So Miss Andrews has come up with a very old idea. Uh, back in the 1950s, when there was a dearth of teachers, they gave teachers college scholarships uh, to go to university. And that was the way many working class boys and girls got a tertiary education. Uh, when they finished, of course, they had a five-year bond. I haven't heard about that, but uh, we're going to hear about it from Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Brodie Carmody and Nicole Presell titled Free Uni Degrees, Living Costs Covered for Victorians Studying High School Teaching. So Victorians studying to become high school teachers will have their degrees and living costs subsidised by the state government, but the education union and opposition say the payments won't be enough to address chronic workforce shortages. Students will get $18,000 for a four-year undergraduate program or $9,000 for two years of postgrad study if they commit to teaching in state secondary schools for at least two years, Premier Daniel Andrews announced announced on Tuesday. He also said Victorians studying to become high school teachers will have their degrees and living costs subsidised by the government. The funding covers the gap from a Commonwealth-supported place at university, with fees ranging depending on the university, but students without a CSP will also be eligible for the state's funding. On average, the Commonwealth provides $13,836 for one year of a bachelor education, with students paying about $4,000. Full fees range from $23,000 to $30,000 across universities, rising to a high of 66000 for a master's degree at Melbourne Uni. About 4,000 graduate teachers will benefit from the scheme, which will be open to students who enrol in teaching degrees next year and in 2025. The money can be used to pay off university debt or fund everyday living costs. It will be paid in two instalments, the first while studying and the second two years after graduation. The $229 million package, which also expands teacher incentives and learn-on-the-job programs, comes after principals, teachers and school staff protested on the steps of State Parliament on Friday to highlight the teacher shortage. The Australian Education Union said job vacancies were at an all-time high, with as many as 2,600 jobs yet to be filled. The union recently wrote a letter to the Premier and Education Minister Natalie Hutchins to request retention payments for existing teachers and additional financial support for those studying to enter the profession. Andrews insisted that the AEU's recent action did not trigger the support package. No one needed to protest at Parliament, he said. No one needed to put ads in the paper. Every day that we've been in office, we've invested in state schools. All of that is a continuous process, and I'm not ruling out doing more beyond this. However, a cabinet minister speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss internal matters acknowledged Tuesday's announcement was partly in response to the union's recent campaigning. Nat has worked really hard on solutions, the Labor frontbencher said. The government has recruited 5,000 teachers since 2020, a figure it says is higher than any other state. 
So the announcement echoes the government's support for graduate nurses last year. Andrews said the latest round of university subsidies were geared towards public high school teachers because that was where Victoria was experiencing its most acute workplace shortages. This is a really significant investment in that group of people who change lives. This is a lot of money, but it's not a cost. It's a profound investment in the future of our state. Andrews said he expected some private schools might be frustrated by the announcement. It's not our job to support private hospitals. It's not our job to support private schools, he said. We support choice. In June, The Age reported that Education Department modelling predicted the number of secondary students would outpace the number of teachers over the next four years in Victorian public high schools, with the number of students growing 14.6% by 2027, 2.6% more than the estimated increase in teachers. University of Melbourne Deputy Dean of Education Larissa McLean-Davis said more people studying to become teachers would be better for the whole system and that teachers did move between the independent and state systems. While it's really very positive that we are encouraging teachers to come into the profession in this way, this won't be sufficient in terms of the longer term retention and recognition of the resources and funding and support that's needed. Berwick Lodge Primary School Principal Henry Grossick said while the new incentives were excellent for the high school sector, they didn't go far enough. To split it for half the sector is to belittle the importance of the crisis we are facing. If we don't get the primary schools right for kids' educations because we are struggling to get teachers, by the time they get to secondary, the horse will have bolted for a lot of kids. He was concerned it could lead to people not applying to study primary teaching because the incentives were greater for secondary school teaching students. Justin Mullaly, Deputy President of the Australian Education Union's Victorian branch, said the announcements were a step in the right direction, but the government needed to do more to retain existing staff who were burnt out and taking extended leave or leaving the profession. Retention payments are one of the many solutions the government can implement now to acknowledge the key role of teachers, education support staff and principals, their valuable work and encourage them to stay in the profession, Mullaly said. Victorian Association of State Secondary Principals President Colin Axop welcomed the announcement but said it wasn't a complete solution. This is part of a much bigger picture of making teaching a profession that people want to go into for a long period of time, he said. It's also about what we can do to retain teachers. The teacher supply issue is always one of a combination of recruitment and retention. He said there needed to be a focus on looking after and mentoring graduate teachers, which the funding would do for the first couple of years. If they have a positive experience in their first two, three, four years of teaching, they'll likely think, this is a vocation I want for my life. Australian Principal Federation President Tina King welcomed the announcement but said it would still be difficult to attract people to the profession. But society also has a role to play in giving teaching the kudos and status the profession deserves in demonstrating respect and consideration for the work teachers do, King said. It's a start and it will help, but alongside that, society has a part to play in supporting our teachers. Back to you, Jean. Oh, thank you, Dale. And now I think we're due for a break. So let's have a break and then we'll go overseas with Jeff. 
Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, we hope you're still listening to The Dogs program because we're now going to our overseas correspondent. Jeff is going to take us to Wisconsin over there in America with some very interesting news indeed. Thanks, Jean. And we're going to an article in the Wisconsin Examiner, which is linked through Diana Ravitch's blog, a blog we follow regularly. And this article is by Ruth Conniff, and its title is How Anti-Government Ideologues Targeted Wisconsin Public Schools. She says... Now that the school year has started, I've been volunteering on the Madison East High School cross-country team, trying to keep up with 80 or so kids as they run through the Madison East side neighbourhoods and around the fields behind the school. A former East runner myself, I've always been a pergola partisan. All three of my kids have been shaped by the down-to-earth culture of East High School with its hallmark quirkiness, warmth and inclusive ethic that to me captures the social value of public school. To be sure, there are glaring inequalities among public schools in Wisconsin. These are on display to East kids whenever they travel for meets away from their school with its ageing facilities and World War II-era cinder track to the groomed fields and gleaming stadiums of some of their competitors. Still, the inequities among public schools in richer and poorer property tax districts are nothing compared to the existential threat to public education from a parallel system of publicly funded private schools that has been nurtured and promoted by a national network of right-wing think tanks, well-funded lobbyists and anti-government ideologues. For decades, Wisconsin has been at the epicentre of the movement to privatise education, pushed by the Milwaukee-based Bradley Foundation, a mega-wealthy conservative foundation and early backer of Milwaukee's first-in-the-nation school voucher program, 
That program has expanded from fewer than 350 students when it launched in 1990 to 52,000 Wisconsin students using school vouchers today. This year, school privatisation advocates scored a huge victory when Democratic Governor Tony Evers, a long-time ally of public schools, agreed to a budget bargain that includes a historic bump in the amount of tax money per pupil Wisconsinites spend on private school vouchers. The rate went up from $8,399 to $9,874 for primary kids and $9,405 to $12,368 for high schoolers. Not only is the amount of money taxpayers spend on private education increasing, in just a couple of years all enrolment caps come off the school choice program. We are on our way to becoming an all-voucher system. This makes no sense, especially since over the last 33 years, the school voucher experiment has failed to produce better outcomes in reading and math than regular public schools. So why are we undermining our public school system to continue the voucher expansion? School Choice with Wisconsin would have you believe that vouchers for private school are an improvement on public schools. In a recent report, the group claims that publicly funded private schools are more cost-effective when you compare their academic results to the cost of educating its student. Behind the scenes, meanwhile, the same group is pushing to prevent the state from publicly disclosing how much taxpayer money we're spending on publicly funded private schools. There's something fishy going on with the scientific-sounding document School Choice Wisconsin is promoting. Using the word report to describe the document is the kind of thing that drives school finance experts nuts, Joshua Cohen, a professor of education policy at Michigan State University who has studied school vouchers for nearly two decades, told me on the phone after he read it. A serious version of this would give a range and talk about what would happen if you changed your assumptions, Cohen said. For example, there are big differences in per pupil spending across Wisconsin school districts. But the school choice lobby group came up with a back-of-the-envelope ratio that doesn't separate different areas with different costs, nor does it make an apples-to-apples comparison between particular voucher schools and nearby public schools in the same district. There's a much bigger problem, though, says Cohen. If you took the report at its word, he says, it's possible to achieve exactly what they're describing simply by exiting the children who are the most expensive to educate. That's significant because Wisconsin voucher schools have a long record of expelling and counselling out expensive-to-educate students. The ACLU of Wisconsin called on the US Department of Justice to investigate Wisconsin's school voucher program for discriminating against children with disabilities in 2011, pointing to the very low number of special needs students in Milwaukee voucher schools. Last May, Wisconsin Watch reported on how voucher schools continue to discriminate against LGBTQ students and kids with disabilities by expelling them or counselling them to drop out. Forget cost-effective, says Cohen. They're just able to reject kids that are more costly to them. Meanwhile, touting their dubious record of success in Wisconsin, pro-voucher groups are using Wisconsin kids to push forward vouchers nationally, Cohen says. The foot in the door, created by the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program in 1990 with 350 kids, that's what created vouchers everywhere, says Cohen. 
He notes that the School Choice Wisconsin report credits a study by Corey DeAngelis, PhD, a researcher to whom the report attributes a long list of obscure academic journal publications. What the report doesn't note is that DeAngelis is a fellow at right-wing billionaire Betsy DeVos's American Federation for Children, a Michigan-based pro-voucher group that has dumped money into Wisconsin elections. His American Federation for Children bio adds his ties to a bunch of other right-wing foundations, Executive Director at Education Freedom Institute, an adjunct scholar at Cato Institute, a senior fellow at Reason Foundation, and a board member at Liberty Justice Centre, as well as a contributor to National Review and Fox News. The idea that public schools have failed and the free market is the solution has been the drumbeat from these groups for decades. The results have not been good. The roughly zero difference between voucher students and non-voucher students in Wisconsin, that is about as good as it gets nationally, Cohen says. As unimpressive as the school voucher experiment has been in Wisconsin, things are better here than in other states that followed Wisconsin's lead, where Cohen describes the outcomes as catastrophic. We don't often see programs that reduce student achievement the way that vouchers have in Ohio, Indiana, Louisiana and D.C., he says. The learning loss caused by what Cohen calls subprime vouchers schools in church basements and strip malls where academics is not their priority has had roughly twice the effect of COVID in reducing academic performance, he says. I took a tour of fly-by-night voucher schools in Milwaukee back in 2014. They were shockingly awful. They included schools in rundown storefronts where kids played in the parking lot and an abandoned office building where a strict religious sect was teaching creationism in middle school science class. About 40% of voucher schools in Wisconsin that opened since 1990 have closed. Many of them was what Cohen calls the subprimes. These days, Wisconsin's oversight of voucher schools is better than other states. The mainline Catholic and Lutheran schools that participate in the Wisconsin program have provided some stability for students, says Cohen. But the kids who attend these schools might have been there anyway without the voucher program taking money from public schools to help finance their education. One of the lessons of Wisconsin, Cohen says, is that the main beneficiaries of expanded vouchers are the private school families who never put their kids in public school in the first place. About three-quarters of the new students who joined the school voucher program once it expanded statewide had never attended public school. Meanwhile, as taxpayers shell out more and more money to cover the cost of private school tuition, our public schools are increasingly strapped. None of this is driven by thoughtful research or sound education policy. Instead, it's the product of a movement of right-wing ideologues. Members of the group Mums for Liberty laid out their support for school vouchers and their objections to public education recently in a Wall Street Journal opinion piece titled We Don't Co-Parent with the Government. The group takes particular umbrage at the idea of sending their kids to school with LGBTQ and transgender peers. The kids Wisconsin Watch reported are being shoved out of Wisconsin voucher schools. The Mums for Liberty position goes back to the earliest days of school vouchers, says Cohen. He explains that vouchers first emerged in the South after the Brown versus Board of Education decision as a way for white parents to avoid sending their children to school with black students. Now voucher schools like those Wisconsin Watch investigated are working to segregate out gay and trans students. At least it's honest, Cohen says. What's not honest is to say they have good results.
I'd like to think that a majority of Wisconsinites are like my own public school community, friendly, inclusive and dedicated to the idea that everyone deserves an equal shot at getting an education and finding a place in society. If more people knew how much money and energy right-wing ideologues from out of state have put into destroying all that and how destructive their efforts have been for kids, they would be outraged. So an excellent article there via the Diana Ravitch blog. Now I'd just like to nip across to a completely different place, of course. This time it's Malaysia, where there's an article in the Malay Mail, and it's by Zahara Morden. Um, This is actually uh, an article about the main opposition party, the DAP, mainly the centre-left party from Malaysia, and they're concerned about the private school versus public school debate. DAP's Wong Shu Chi... Education issue now centres around private schools versus public schools. DAP lawmaker Wong Shu Chi said that when it comes to national education, the issue lies not in vernacular schools, but in the difference in quality of education and socioeconomic class. I'll just explain that um, vernacular schools in Malaysia refer to private schools which teach a language other than Bahasa Malay, which is the national language of Malaysia. They teach in Tamil. They teach in Chinese, they're the main ones. And basically, because they do teach Bahasa in the school, they're allowed to under the constitution. The DAP lawmaker says, it was not the education ministry's fault, as it was trying its best, but given that Malaysia is a large country and there never were enough resources for education, as every school applies for more funds to improve the quality of its facilities and teaching. First of all, I think whenever we talk about education in schools, When we're talking about schools, people will straight away ask, what about vernacular schools? But I think that question is already way past the point. To me, the question is now, is public school or private school? It's no longer a national school or a Chinese or Tamil school, but public school or private school. It's a social class issue. To all the parents who can afford it, I think they would rather send their kids to private school, she said, at the State of Discrimination Survey 2023 launch. She was asked about what can be done to move forward when schools are becoming less of a shared space to bridge the gap between different people. Wong said that vernacular schools should exist to provide more options for public schools, but that other platforms should exist to integrate school children further. Last year, the High Court in Kota Baru reportedly dismissed a lawsuit by a Muslim teachers group, Ikatan Guru Guru Muslim Malaysia, that sought to declare vernacular schools in Malaysia unconstitutional. According to Malaysia Kini, Judge Rosalind Abu Bakar said that while vernacular schools could be considered public authorities, the constitutional requirement for these to use Bahasa Malayu must not be taken in isolation. Last month, National News Agency Bernama reported that the Court of Appeal heard a submission from Senior Federal Court Liu Hong Bin, representing the Education Minister and the Government of Malaysia, that the use of other languages as the medium of instruction in vernacular primary schools does not violate the federal constitution as the national language is still taught as a compulsory subject. The appeal was reportedly brought by Iguru, Islamic Education Development Council MAPIM, and the Confederation of Malaysia Writers Association GAPINA, and Ikatan Muslimin Malaysia ISMA. So it seems to me that the, the solution to this is public education for all, put all the money that would be divided amongst all those individual administrative systems and put them all in one basket and teach all children all those languages in those schools. They teach already Malay, 
Bahasa Malay, they teach English as well. Why couldn't they all teach also Tamil and Chinese? I asked that question. But uh, all public education should be publicly funded. And public education should be the one that gets the public funds, not dividing the public purse endlessly into smaller and smaller groups. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. It's always good to find out what's happening overseas. But we're coming back this time to New South Wales for our best part of the program, even if it is the final part, our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Rooty Hill High School. And this is taken from their website. Rooty Hill High School is situated on Darragland. The Rooty Hill High School community would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which we have the privilege to live, work and share each day. Staff and students strive to withhold the actions of our Reconciliation Action Plan. Our commitment extends from the classroom to the school grounds and into the community. We show respect to country by ensuring that all staff and students take responsibility for and engage with annual events to contribute to the ongoing learning that takes place in the classroom. We acknowledge and work on maintaining strong relationships with members of the community and our elders that assist with continuing our Aboriginal education journey. We would like to pay respects to all elders who have come before us. They inspire us to make a positive cultural and educational change. Rooty Hill High School is an award-winning comprehensive secondary 7-12 to 12 community school in Western Sydney committed to excellence in learning, leadership and achievement. In 2016 and 17, Rooty Hill High School was chosen as one of the 40 most innovative schools in Australia by Education Magazine and the school is recognised as a Social Ventures Australia powerhouse school. Children attending Rooty Hill High School have a higher chance of having a parent experiencing unemployment or facing unemployment themselves when they leave school than students in inner metropolitan or northern Sydney. They start school with higher rates of social and learning vulnerability and attended primary schools with average NAPLAN scores below the state average. In fact, 80% of students start Year 7 below grade average for the state. Rooty Hill High School has 1,100 students from Year 7 to 12. 55% are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, 5% Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, and 25% from the lowest quartile of socio-educational advantage. The goal of Rooty Hill High School's participation in The Connection was to lift the expectations, capacity and achievement of students to become career capable and future focused and increase their options for study and work after school. Rooty Hill High School is dedicated to changing the lives of its students for the better long after they leave school. The school's work with SVA allowed it to design and deliver innovative ways to build the skills and capabilities to enable a culture that is adaptive, resilient and successful, while also improving student academic performance against more traditional measures. The school is recognised as a leader by the New South Wales Education Department and runs professional development for teachers in other schools. And information from the ACARA website, there's 1,089 students enrolled and the ICSIA value is below average at 954. 
Um, so we have an, in the upper 25% parental income, uh, only 4% of students. In the second level of parental income, 14%. But in the um, third 25%, we have 33%. And in the lowest quartile, we have 49% of students. So really a school which is representative of the disadvantaged in the Australian community, but with 56% 56, 56 speaking a language other than English and 6% Indigenous students. Now the finances, they have recurrent grants from the Australian Government of $23.44 million and $12.6 million from the New South Wales Government. Fees and parental contributions add $105,848. Other private contributions, 94,155. And so per pupil, that's $14,801. Their capital is $1.766 million over three years. And their NAPLAN results are above average in spelling and writing. Marvellous, marvellous, yeah. In fact, you know, they, they should be getting a lot more than that 14,000 odd per pupil, but they're doing a great job, aren't they? But um, I'm afraid our time has gone. And if you want to find out more about us and read our, our press release, then you go to www.adogs.info. So it's now my pleasure to thank our producer, Dale, and Andy, and Maddie, and Jeff, and for me and all of us, it is now bye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.